and the church. It was a dark and stormy night. It really was. It was just before Christmas, and I was out doing some last-second shopping, as I often did that time of year, because I had and still have no sense of time management, and Christmas always snuck up on me. The rain came down in big, fat drops, like tiny water balloons falling from heaven, and I was not in a good mood. I was soaked and behind in my shopping, and it was raining when it felt cold enough to snow. I was running back to my car with my bags of stuff, when off to my right, I heard someone shouting. It was the lady who collected parking money leaning out of the window of her tiny booth some 25 yards away. I noticed that her hair and face were getting sopped. She was yelling at me. She looked in my direction and she was yelling at me. Excuse me, she shouted, almost screaming over the noise of the rain. Are you in pain? What? Are you in pain? Was I in pain? What in the world did she mean was I in pain? Did I look like I was in pain? Was I limping or something? Were the shopping bags heavy and my face strained? I was 18 years old and more than a little brash. No, I finally shouted back. Are you? She laughed, thank you for laughing, and shook her head and flashed a kind smile before returning to the confines of her booth and shutting the window tight. I got to my car and drove up to the lady's booth, fully expecting, maybe even dreading, another conversation with the mysterious woman. But I gave her the ticket and the money, and she said, Merry Christmas, and that was it. <clears throat> That's it? No question about the way I walk or the shape of my hands? Had I offended her with my comeback? It didn't seem so. She was very kind and smiley as she took my money. Was she somehow embarrassed that she'd take such a risk in shouting at me? Or perhaps she thought she'd offended me? I didn't think so. For her face was almost peaceful. It was like she knew something about me that I didn't know myself. As I drove off that night and for many days afterward, the brief encounter with the woman in the parking booth hung around me like a mist. Everywhere I turned, I kept thinking of why she would say such a thing to me. Excuse me, are you in pain? was not exactly a greeting that you could forget, even if you tried, and the more I tossed it around in my mind, the more puzzled I grew. Why did she take such a risk and ask if I were in pain? Later, Years later, as I began exploring thoughts about disability and suffering and brokenness, I began to see this anonymous woman in a new light. I suspect that her motivation was personal, that she saw in me someone who looked quite different from the world and thus had his cards stacked up against him, and she wanted to ask, however feebly, what was it like to be me? But that can't be all of it because no one before or since has ever asked me that question. No, there had to have been something more, but what? Let's pray. Lord God, thank you so much for this time of worship. Thank you for these, um, these students. Thank you for being among us and, and within us and, and near us. We pray, Lord, that you would use me, use these words, help me to get out of your way. We pray this in Jesus' name. Amen.
reading from the book of Job, chapter 2. On another day, the angels came to present themselves before the Lord, and Satan also came with them to present himself before him. And the Lord said to Satan, Where have you come from? Satan answered the Lord, From roaming over through the earth and going back and forth in it. Then the Lord said to Satan, Have you considered my servant Job? There is no one on earth like him. He is blameless and upright, a man who fears God and shuns evil, and he still maintains his integrity, though you incite me, incited me against him to ruin him without any reason. Skin for skin, Satan replied. <clears throat> a man will give all he has for his own life, but stretch out your hand and strike his flesh and bones, and he will surely curse you to your face. The Lord said to Satan, Very well, then he is in your hands, but you must spare his life. So Satan went out from the presence of the Lord and afflicted Job with painful sores from his, the soles of his feet to the top of his head. Then Job took a piece of broken pottery and scraped himself with it as he sat among the ashes. The text for today is a mystery on so many levels that preachers, especially guest preachers, should avoid it at all possible costs if they know what's good for them. It raises too many questions about God and his sovereignty about suffering and its indiscriminate targeting of people good and bad alike, about Satan and his unquenchable thirst to drive a wedge between us and God. No, it's safer to preach about the love of God or the humanity of Jesus or the life of praise and the life hereafter. But today we are looking at Job because today we are speaking about disability and suffering and brokenness and about how the church has responded or not responded to these things. Today, we are looking at disability through the lens of Scripture to see what God says about disability and to see what disability says about God. The text opens just after Job has received the awful news that his servants and cattle are dead and his children have all been killed in some sort of desert typhoon. His response to this news is remarkable. Chapter 120, verse 20 says that at this, Job got up and tore his robe and shaved his head. Then he fell to the ground in worship. He fell to the ground in worship. He's lost everything he has, and his offspring are dead, and he falls to the ground in worship. Already we see that Job is not like us, not like me anyway. Worship would not be anything close to my posture if I were in his sandals. Job is lost in worship as a response to his first test. Then, the second test. Here, Satan inflicts poor Job with sores from toe to head and everything in between. We don't know what happened to him exactly. But later in the book, we learn that his body is, quote, clothed with worms and scabs, and that his skin is broken and festering. You didn't hear this in Sunday school, did you? No. Later, he still talks of having excessive thinness and profound disfigurement and unceasing pain and even bad breath. Not exactly someone you'd want to invite for tea. But look closely at this text for what comes next. Look closely at verse 8 and read it slowly. Otherwise, you might miss one of the most profound moments of the entire story. He's just been afflicted with these painful, itchy boils, and what does he do? He sees a piece of broken pottery, a shard of clay, lying on the ground, and he uses it to scrape himself presumably to get relief from his misery as he sits among the ash heap. Two things jump out at us from this brief verse. 
First, that Job even notices this seemingly useless piece of refuse on the ground. Why would he even look there? Why would he even see such a worthless thing? We don't know exactly, but I suspect he was feeling pretty useless and broken and thrown away himself. And when you're feeling that way, you're suddenly pretty good at noticing things that remind you of yourself. So Job looked down and saw himself, lying, saw himself there lying on the ground. The inescapable fact here is that Job's brokenness drew him to the brokenness around him, and it allowed him to see things as he probably never before had ever noticed. The second point to jump off the page is this, that Job took that useless throwaway item and used it to relieve his own suffering. He took a thing that no one wanted anymore, a thing entirely without value in the eyes of the world, and he redeemed it. He, he said, in effect, to that worthless shard of clay, you matter to me. I need you. The world might think you're just a piece of trash, but you are the most important thing in the universe to me right now. Think this through carefully, and if you're beginning to wonder if there might be a connection, even a remote one, between Job and Jesus, then I think you might be onto something. In the prophecy about him in Isaiah 52, after all, Jesus is referred to as having a disfigured appearance, perhaps pointing to his crucifixion. And later in Isaiah, he is called the man of sorrows and familiar with suffering. There can be no doubt that when Jesus walked the earth, he spent most of his ministry with people who were broken or suffering or rejected, or rejected or all of the above. In short, Jesus hung out with shards of clay, people who had been thrown away by the world, waiting to be seen and picked up and healed and redeemed and made whole. But it turns out that Jesus isn't just Job in a fancy New Testament cloak. It turns out that at the end of his life, as he hung there pinned to that cross and dying, Jesus became the shard of clay. He became the trash of the world so that we would never have to. He became the piece of pottery to relieve our anguish. By his wounds, we've been healed. These are deep and mysterious ideas, but what do they have to do with disability? In short, everything. In 1964, I was born with the rarest of conditions called arthrogryposis multiplex congenita. God bless you. So rare, in fact, that the odds were one out of every 750,000 births. At once, my mother was told by doctors that I'd never live. Then she was told that if I did live, I'd never walk. And then she was told that chances were so good that I'd turn out to be mentally retarded. They used that awful phrase back then that she should put me into a mental institution and get on with the rest of her life. The doctors told my mother to throw me away. Now, in my, in my less Christian moments, I'm, I'm breaking from the text, and you notice? In my less Christian moments, um, sometimes when I speak about this, uh, I think about the, the age of those doctors, and I'm pretty sure that all those doctors are now dead. Here I am, nanny, nanny, boo-boo. Fortunately, God and my mother had other plans. As she came to the hospital every day to feed me for the first few months of my life, my mom quick, quickly realized that there was nothing wrong with my brain. She'd made the same little noises she'd made when my older sisters, who are not disabled, were that age, and lo and behold, she got the same bright-eyed reaction 
And soon enough, she stood up to those doctors and basically said, you are not throwing him away, and I'm not either. He's coming home with me. And a few weeks later, I did exactly that. I wish I could tell you stories of an easy life, of never being stared at, of never being made fun of or called names or rejected by my so-called friends. But I can't. I wish I could tell you stories of being in church and never made to feel awkward at the communion table or never frustrated because I couldn't get into the building on an icy Sunday morning. But I can't. You see, the church, like the world around it, has a long way to go in its comfort with and among those who are different because the church, like the world around it, doesn't like to think about brokenness. To enter into a truthful dialogue about the brokenness around us is more than a little scary. Why? First, because someone somewhere might buy into the lie that brokenness is the direct result of some kind of spiritual lapse. It's not a far leap, then, to the slippery slope so common in Jesus' day that disability is the direct result of sin. Rabbi, the Lord's disciples asked in John chapter 9, who sinned, this man or his parents, that he should be born blind? Disability in the ancient world was a rather cut-and-dried, black-and-white, cause-and-effect affair. If you do X, then Y is bound to come upon you as punishment. So whatever you do, avoid X at all possible cost. The second reason brokenness is more than a little scary for us in the church is because seeing it in others makes us come face-to-face with our own brokenness. And who among us wants to do that? If churches started talking more about the brokenness and various disabilities within their doors, why, then they might stop being church altogether and start running repeat satellite feeds of the Oprah Winfrey show instead. The problem with both of these reasons is that they are thoroughly, completely unbiblical. Think about the radical kindness that King David showed to Mephibosheth, the disabled son of David's best friend, Jonathan or the thorn in the flesh that Paul prayed earnestly to have removed, only to be told by the Lord, my grace is sufficient for you. My power is made perfect in weakness. Or Jesus' reply to his disciples' misguided musings about the man born blind, neither this man nor his parents sinned, said Jesus, but this happened so that the work of God might be displayed in his life. These examples and many others point us to the conclusion that disability and brokenness and imperfection are at the very core of a life with God. God the Father knows about disability intimately because God the Son was in fact disabled as he was nailed on the cross. The Lord cared deeply about the disability about di- the Lord cared deeply about disability because it was in the end how God brought glory to himself time and time again. So if this is what God says and feels about disability, then what does disability tell us about God? This is a harder question to answer, and it's one that I've wrestled with for a very long time. I'm 46 years old, and I have lived with this disability all my life, and I still on occasion ask the question, why me? What were you thinking, God? Couldn't you have just given me lots of freckles instead? Job asked questions like these, and I take great comfort in knowing that I am not alone. 
But the answer I keep getting over and over again is twofold. First, this. My grace is sufficient for you, for my power is made perfect in weakness. In other words, the reply comes like this. I'm God. I'm in charge. And your disability allows me to show my power. Period. Full stop. And I, like Job, cannot answer when God speaks out of the whirlwind. The second answer I keep getting to the why me questions is as baffling as it is compelling. You, John Sharon, are made in my image. And don't you ever forget that. Me? Made in the image of God? How can that be? I'm disabled after all. I'm broken and limping and confined. Yes, seems to come the reply. You, even you, are made in my image. If that's true, and how can we believe that it isn't, then we are left with the inescapable fact that disability reflects the very heart of God. It's a staggering conclusion, and one that should lead all churches, your church, my church, all of us, to open wide our doors to the disabled. Not to pity them, or to feel good about ourselves, about helping them. Rather, to give us a more complete and thorough picture of the heart of God. So disability, it seems, plays a dual role from the perspective of the heavenly realms. On the one hand, it serves to glorify God in ways that few otherworldly things can, through weakness. As Paul writes in 1 Corinthians 1, 27, but God chose the foolish things of the world to shame the wise. God chose the weak things of the world to shame the strong. That's the paradox of the gospel, of the world turned upside down message of the kingdom of God, right? That weakness brings glory to God in ways that strength never can. On the other hand, because disability reflects the heart of God, it actually causes us to be drawn to the heart of God in ways that we could otherwise never be. When we stand stooped over at the mirror of our own brokenness, we can respond in no way other than to open our feeble arms and allow ourselves to be embraced by our Heavenly Father. Our friend Job, sitting there in the ashes with shard of clay in hand, seems to have understood this well. Because as one commentator has pointed out, never, not once, did Job ever ask God for healing. Did he ask why? Absolutely. Did he ask for answers to his questions? Yes, yes, a thousand times yes. But he never asked God to heal him. Perhaps he knew the truth all along, that his brokenness actually deepened his walk with God. And that, in a circuitous kind of way, brings us back to the woman at the parking booth. Sometimes I allow my imagination to take over. 
And I concoct a life around this mysterious woman that goes something like this. Because she was probably in her 40s that night that I met her, I imagine that she had just finished raising her kids, getting them to school age at any rate. She was maybe going back to work for the first time in a long while. Her life was one struggle after another, strung together like so many pieces of rope held fast by untidy knots. Maybe she was a widow, or her husband had left her for another woman. Maybe, just maybe, one of her children had a disability. Maybe arthritis. And it did nothing but consume the child and her mother because there was so much pain and so much isolation and so many hopes that had to be left behind. And there she was, this single mother going back to work and trying to get on her feet, and then she saw this guy walking all jaggedy and seemingly full of effort. And forget the rain, she needed to find out if this guy was in as much pain as it looked like. She needed to find out if it hurt, and she needed to know if her daughter would always hurt, and if her daughter would ever go out shopping by herself and drive a car. Whatever the scenario, the woman in the parking booth knew brokenness. And her brokenness compelled her, even if only for a moment, to enter into the brokenness of someone else. That's what happens when we embrace and allow ourselves to be embraced by those people who have been blessed with a disability. Yes, I said blessed. Because when we do so, we are, like Job, falling to the ground in worship, lost in wonder, love, and praise that God can use a broken shard of clay to redeem the world. Let's pray. Father God, there are so many mysteries to these things. There are so much that we don't understand and can't understand. But I pray, Father, that you would allow us to be a changed people from this moment forward. I pray that you would give us the grace to enter into the world or to the world of the lives around us to reveal our own brokenness, however feebly we've tried to stuff it and hide it. I pray, Lord, for true community as we wrestle with texts like these. I pray that you would change us, mold us, shape us. Help us to be more of you and more in your likeness, Lord, to be more and more your hands and feet. I pray, Lord, that you would take this message and change hearts that need to be changed. Make this community a deeper, richer community, not because of masks and pretense, but because of transparency and brokenness and realness. Lord, that's what you did time and time again. And we thank you, Lord, for dying for us. We thank you for rising, for, for conquering death, we pray now that you would bless these students as they go forth in their fac and faculty. Give them grace, Lord, to do your work. And we pray this in the powerful name of Jesus. Amen.